us to 1 Peter chapter 3, continuing through this great short letter. Actually, verses 3 through 12 that we're going to read today is actually one long sentence in the original language. Um, but the pieces of it are so helpful, we're slowing down to enjoy to enjoy and, and, and meditate and, and learn from, from the phrases. Let's read this. It's 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read verses 3 through 12 and, and see the beauty of the gospel. This is God's word. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of our soul, your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not you, the things that are now to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is God's word. It is true and trustworthy, and spoke, he has spoken to us today in love, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in the midst of various trials, and so I pray that our time together would strengthen our faith as we see Jesus with us in the fires of affliction. And so may we leave here helped by your Spirit, but to intensify our love for Jesus, who we have not seen yet. Despite not seeing him, we rejoice with a joy inexpressible with how good you have been to us in him. So help us see today in the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. I think it's been a few years now, but I got the opportunity to attend a lecture up at uh, Adirondack Community College. Um, it was, I think it was a Christian club on campus that was putting it on, but it was a whole talk about how do you process living in a world filled with so much evil and suffering and still hold on to this firm belief that God is good. And I remember listening to the philosophy professor. He represented the side of unbelief. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, he went through some kind of trouble that, that, that his faith was tested, and because of this particular trouble, he walked away from God. He walked away from Jesus. He, it was the fires of affliction that led to doubt and then ultimately left his faith in ashes. 
Right? And, and I, what, I, what I find helpful in Peter is he's saying it does not have to be that way. In fact, as you go through the, 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 the testing fire, it can actually increase your love for Jesus. It increases your faith. Your, the, the, the faith you go through will be shown to be genuine, to be more precious than gold. Right? I mean, so Peter, right, is what we've been talking about. He's writing to Christians. He's trying to show the weak, the doubting, these, these elect exiles who've, whose lives have been turned upside down, and they're, they're going through various trials. And he wants to show them the power of what they have in Jesus, the power of the resurrection, that you can have joy in the midst of grief, that your faith can be purified, strengthened. Right, and that's the image Peter uses. It's you're, you're in the testing fires. In, in verse 6 and 7, you're, you're going through these various trials. Right, and that's such a good metaphor for everything we've lived in the last year, but also just in general, suffering. Right? You're being tested. Your faith is being tested by fire. When your plans don't go the way you want them to. Um, when you're in an argument and you feel like there's no way out, when you're criticized unjustly, when you're in a hospital bed, stuck, weak, when you're, you're grieving, when you're, right, kids, when you're being corrected by your parents yet again over this thing that you don't want to hear about anymore, uh, when you've failed, perhaps like Peter publicly, right? These are all kinds of trials that are testing your faith, that are being tested by fire. And, I, you know, I, can't even touch on all the limitless number of ways humans suffer and go through trouble. And so the question is, this morning as we look at this text, how does Jesus' resurrection show your faith to be stronger? How does it change you? How does, how does the joy of Jesus being resurrected keep the grief from overwhelming you? And that's what he's going to do. He's going to connect our right now troubles, right? right now you grieve, with the testing of fire so that you come out on the other side and say, right now I also have joy because I know the gospel. So how does that work? Well, I think what we're going to see is it's, it's the way the joy of what we've received in Christ exists at the very same time with the grief we have through the various trials. And it's the joy that sustains our grief. And I want to see how that works with you today. It's, this is such a great passage. And so let's, let's start here. What is the, the ultimate source of your joy? Right? Where do you find joy? What are you rejoicing in? But to start, we need a recap, because this is the middle of a long sentence. All right, Peter's told us these, these helpful things, that, that you're an elect exile. He's telling us how strange we are as Christians, right? Uh, that it's normal to feel like an outsider if you're a Christian, that you're a resident alien. Everyone has suffering, but if you're an elect exile whose allegiance is to Jesus, uh, you're going to be even stranger and have more suffering. Right? As soon as you say, I'm committed to obeying Jesus, that adds a whole list of trials to your life that, that weren't there before. Try to say no to something Jesus says you should say no to, and you will experience suffering. 
Right? But that's, that's part of being in exile. Uh, we've also seen that how loved we are by this God. Right? That's what Jim was, Pastor Jim was talking about this morning. We're elect exiles. We're loved by God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son in particular ways. Um, you've been, even though you're strange to the world, you are known, fully known, and fully loved in Christ. And then last week at Easter, we talked about how lucky we are. I didn't use that phrase. It's an expression, right? We're talking about providence in Sunday school. I'm not throwing that theology out, right? But now we're, if you think about what you have received in Christ, do you know how lucky you are? <laughs> right? It's like Christians have won a lottery. They can't be wasted, stolen, lost, or ruined. Because that's what happens to lottery winners. It all, it all disappears really fast. Now, you've been given... This fantastic future through Jesus' resurrection from the dead, a future that is imperishable, unfading, and undefiled. And it's guarded by God's power, not by us in Christ. Right? You've got it made. You've got this future secured for you through faith. Right? And that's what Peter says. It's in that reality as being strange, being loved, being lucky, so to speak, in this, in him, you rejoice, in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though for now, for a little while, you have been grieved. And then verse 8, it goes on to say, you re- it just lists a whole bunch of joy at, at words. That you rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. Or you rejoice with joy inexpressible, and it's a glorious joy. Right? It's hard to, to, to understand what he's getting at, other than it's just joy, 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 it's everywhere. <laughs> You're overwhelmed by the joy, and that's the point. It's so weighty, so powerful, so hopeful that it's hard to put in words. It's something you can't stop thinking about. You can't stop praising it. Uh, it's heart-achingly good. I mean, we, we see this in our kids when you tell them something good is happening. They just start dancing, right, uncontrollably. They just start, right, if you're Ezra, he's, he's got his arms up. He's yelling. He's excited, right? It's... This is an inexpressible joy because the anticipation of what it is is so good, it, it, it's controlling you. All right, and of course, verse 6 is talking about heaven, eternal life, this imperishable, unfading reality that every Christian has because Jesus rose from the dead. You're bound for the promised land, the land where evil is undone, death is dead. Faith has become sight, joy unending. But right now, if necessary, you are grieved by various trials. And that's, that's what's astounding here is how much this joy exists side by side with very real grief. And that word for, for grief, for being grieved, is the same word. Let's help you see the depths of what this is describing. It's the same word used to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. My soul, Jesus says, is grieved to the pain of death. I'm falling apart. I mean, it's, it's absolute agony. Right? To the point where he, it says, he falls on his face. He can't even stand. The grief is so crushing. Right? And so when Peter says, you have this Right now, inexpressible joy. He's writing to people whose lives have been torn apart and, and they don't always have the strength to stand up. They're crying. They're in grief. Right? And, and I know as soon as you put those two things together, 
every human being is like, how in the world does that work? Much less Christians, right? That you can have joy when you're missing a loved one. That you can have joy that isn't controlled by our comfort, by our circumstances. How does that work? But that's what Peter says. This is the common experience for every Christian. You have joy amidst the grief. All right, I mean, notice what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say, yeah, life stinks right now, but all the good stuff's to come. All right? The fantastic future is it's so good, just hang on. I mean, that is absolutely true, but that's not what he says right here. Nor does he say, which would re- make it really strange, uh, rejoice that you are suffering. Thank God for pain. That's not what he says. I've heard that teaching before. He's not saying that when you're in the, your, the fire is testing your faith, you go, wee. <laughs> right? That makes you weird. We have a word for that. That's called masochism. <laughs> it's not faith. Well, the reality is, for most human beings, for all of us, for myself included, our joy is controlled by our circumstances, and that's why this is so hard. Because we've hitched our joy to how well things are going right now. Not to how good our future is in Christ. Right? I mean, you can think about it, right? All those things we love, money, because of the benefits it gives, comfort, freedom from the masks and all this COVID stuff. Right? The, the joy of, well, our political side is winning. We're getting what we want. The joy of being loved by someone, right? All these things, right? How we feel in a current moment is depending on all these things that we've hitched our joys to. Right? Jesus tells us a great story that shows us what, what kind of life this looks like and how dangerous it is to hitch your joys to something here on earth. Right? This comes from Mark chapter 10, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can. It's Mark chapter 10. We'll start in verse 17. It's the famous story of the rich young man, the rich young ruler. Someone who's absolutely controlled by his circumstances. It says in verse 17, as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and, and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Of course, Jesus says to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And this young man said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. (laughs) Go sell all that you have. Give it away to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, this young man went away sorrowful, grieved, the same word from 1 Peter, because he had great possessions. Why is he so devastated by Jesus' words? Because he can't imagine having a life without what he has, without his stuff, without all the joy that his his circumstances have provided him. He's hitched his joys to his stuff, all of his joy, all of his hope. It's wrapped up in this life, and 
And what I love about this is the way Mark talks about it. Right? That Jesus, looking at this young man, he loved him. Right? So this is the context of this whole conversation of what do you love most? Right? Jesus is about to pull the rug from under this man. He's about to cause grief. He's about to show him that your joy is insufficient for reality. Um, he's about to show this man he's a sinner. That he too is a moral failure. It's like, yeah, you've kept those commandments, but what about the first one? <laughs> Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have no other gods before me. Right? I mean, Jesus is about to turn up the testing fire. He's going to turn up the flames here and say, will you trust that with me, Jesus, is a greater joy that you can imagine, even if it means suffering now, suffering loss? And the context for that whole conversation is Jesus loved him. Mark's source, you know who saw this conversation? It's Peter. That's what uh, the historians tell us. Everything Mark, see this is why Peter is everywhere in the Gospel of Mark, is because Peter was telling Mark what happened. And So Peter was so marked by this conversation that he remembers that there was something in Jesus' eyes when he looked at this young man. He saw love even as Jesus caused agony. Right? So you can think about it this way. Jesus is looking at this man and says, you see me, do you love me more than your stuff? Right? What's your joy? You may be a decent fellow to everyone else, but what about commandment number one, Jesus asked, do you love me? Will you follow me? Sell everything you have. Of course, he walks away grieved. And so that's, that's where the testing fire is for us as Christians, right? Jesus asked, do you love me? Do you love me enough to rejoice even when faithfulness means you're going to lose? Even when faithfulness means you're going to experience sorrow and loss? Right? It can be more blunt. Jesus is after, I mean, he's talking to us too, right? But he's after the affections of this man's heart, what he loves most, his ultimate source of joy. And if what you love most is here on earth, the fires of affliction, the testing fires, will leave you in ashes because you, at what you love is, is what you become. Right? Your joy will be consumed by the flames. Even gold, when it's tested by fire, even gold perishes. Later in First Peter, it's all you put all this together. What, where is the ultimate source of your joy? Is it found in the resurrection and the, the fantastic future that Jesus has secured for for you by faith? Because you can't avoid grief, but what Jesus gives you is a fireproof joy that is with you when life stinks. I mean, that's, that's what First Peter's after. You can go back to First Peter. That there is a joy that is with you right now in the fire, right next to your grief. Right? Right now, you grieve. Right now, verse 8, you rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible because of your belief. Right? It's a joy that's with you in the text. When I was in my 20s, uh, I heard someone, a pastor say, 
Christians, the longer you become a Christian, the, you'll become both sadder and happier at the same time, right? And when you're 24 and haven't suffered much, it's hard to understand what he means by that. But, I, you know, if this world is full of grief and various trials, the more you understand the gospel and how broken this world is, the more you're going to be grieved. And the more you live, the more you're going to lose. And so your grief grows, right? That's why Jesus is the man of sorrows. At the same time, you have a deeper joy because you're, you're starting to, to uproot your, your hope that's here in this earth and, and see that it's grounded and rooted in Jesus. And so your joy increases. It becomes better. It becomes better and better news. That's why Jesus said in John 16 that, uh, yeah, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. So, where have you been putting your, your joy in lately? Right. I'm not talking about happiness. It's something completely different. Happiness is an illusion. That's, that's a, a brief fleeting thing. We're talking about joy of, of, of this thing that keeps you afloat when, when the, wave, the storms and the waves hit you. Like you may go under the water, but this, this joy brings you back up above water. Right. Where's your joy? If it's hitched to anything in this world, it's perishable, it's fading, it's going to be defiled. Now, how is joy with you in the fire? All right, and this is, again, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while you're grieved that this tested genuineness of your faith, and then there's a pause here. Your faith is more precious than gold, even though your faith is being tested by fire. All right, so the, the picture is, your faith is like a precious metal being tested by flames. That's what happens when you're in trouble. It's a common metaphor in the Old Testament, testing fire, the furnace. I mean, Peter's going to talk later about fiery trials in chapter 4. Um, in the Old Testament, Proverbs 17 is one of the famous ones, right? The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. You're, you're in the testing fire, and as the temperature goes up, you're seeing what's in your heart. Right? And so what Peter is writing to comfort these Christians is saying, right now, your faith is being tested by fire, but it's being tested by the one who, who's in control of the fire. Right? You're in his hands. You're in the hands of the divine uh, metallurgist. I'm not sure how to say that word well, but I'm going to say it anyway. Right? The, the, the divine metal worker. He's putting you through the fire so you won't be harmed, but so that your faith will be refined and shown to be genuine, so that what is not of faith will be burned away. Right? There's things that need to change. <laughs> and so we're, our faith is tested by fire. And so all the impurities burn off, the selfishness, the bitterness, the complaining, the whining, the sinful anger, the sinful anxiety. Right? I mean, you, you start to think about this. This is what fire does to gold. It reveals what's there, even as it purifies it, right? It's, it's showing the impurities within, the dross falls off, and you're getting to see what you really love too much. You're getting to see what you really believe when you go through the fire. Do I really love Jesus? 
Do I really believe that this story is true, that I'm, I'm going to be raised from the dead? When I'm talking to a doctor that says, you may live for a long time, you might not. You're about to go through a trial. Right? Or maybe you read the article that, I, that was sent a few weeks ago by Tim Keller. Right? He had one of those doctor appointments. You have cancer. It could be fatal. And the pastor who walked decades, walked for decades with people who suffered, says, do I really believe this? He was brutally honest there. And this is what the testing fire is for, to show the genuineness of your faith that you get to the point where you realize, I need Jesus. That's, That's the reflection. When calamity strikes, I need Jesus. C.S. Lewis helpfully says, right, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he's shouting to us when we're in pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world, meaning that when when the the testing fires come, God's trying to get your attention. It's one of the things he does through those trials, right, where you can see God's character in our suffering, and you can see that uh, we are all too self-sufficient. What do you believe? That's what the the fire is up to. Do you really believe these things? Do you really believe what God says about himself in Lamentations, that though the Lord causes grief, hear that, he will also have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, because the Lord does not afflict from his heart, nor does he grieve the children of man. It's not, it's not the, the act of a cruel God who enjoys inflicting pain on people. He's able to use the pain to test the genuineness of your faith. He's able to work through the evil to do good for those who love him. Right. What do you believe? Do you believe that you're seen by God right now and, and that the eyes that look upon you are the eyes of Jesus, that when he looks on you and he sees your faith being tested, he loves you. Faith is revealed in the fire. Right? I mean, this is Job, right? Job is, of course he's praising God because everything's fantastic, and that is also a test of fire, right? The, there's another passage in Proverbs 27 that says, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and, the, and man is tested by praise. <laughs> You're tested by how good things are going. Are you going to be proudful, pride, arrogant, there we go, or humble? And of course, Job is, all things are well, and then Satan's given the freedom to test Job's faith, and he loses his kids, he loses his property, he loses all kinds of things. And all he's left with is a nagging wife and friends who assume it's his fault. And Job falls apart, right? He's in agony, tears his clothes, crying out, But he still says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His faith was revealed in the fire. So how does then faith, I think it also becomes more genuine in the fire. How is, right, we're talking about how faith makes you radiant. Those who look to the Lord will, will be radiant. Their faces will never be ashamed. This is Psalm 34. How does your faith grow in the testing fires? 
forces you to turn to the resurrection. It forces you to look at the imperishable inheritance you've received. It forces you to say, where is my joy? So sorrow has a holy purpose to push you towards the resurrection. Because in your agony, you can find that your joy, Jesus, is with you in the fire. That though you don't see him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you now believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible, filled with glory. How does that work? Well, get real practical. You got to take time in prayer to think about it. (laughs) You actually have to think about it. Uh, You need to read the scriptures to know the character of God while you're suffering, so you're not just left to your own imagination. And you need to do it with other Christians in community. Peter's writing to a group of Christians, not to individuals. You need the church. Right? But you do. You have to compare. You have to do what Peter's doing. Start comparing the imperishable with the perishable. Start to compare the defiled with the undefiled. You start to compare the fading with the unfading. You start to compare this momentary affliction with how great the future is. Right? You have to do some, some comparison. I mean, Peter, for example, he's going to talk about this later in the letter, and we'll get there. He says, you as exiles are going to face all kinds of uh, verbal cruelty. You're going to be reviled. You are being reviled. And if you're a people pleaser, you know how crushing that is. And so it's a testing fire. Let's test the genuineness of your faith as you're being criticized. Well, what is imperishable, unfading, and undefiled in Christ? What does your father think of you? You have a father. He loves you. What is it revealing about you and your faith? Well, if you're a people pleaser, uh, probably that you get too much joy from being liked by other humans. So the testing fire is starting to reveal you and your faith and that your faith is... Well, unlike Jesus, who did not put his faith in man, in John chapter 2. So all of a sudden, the impurities are starting to be burned off as you realize, I cannot live by the, the affections of other people because it'll crush me. Because my joy is going to be hitched to what they think of me. And if what they think of me goes like this, I'm going to go like this, up and down. Right. So you've got to compare You've got to let the agony push you towards the joy of being known, loved, and defended by Jesus. Having your future secure. And one of my favorite stories I read in the last couple of years, it's a, a kid's story. It's called the Green Ember series. It's about, it's a fantasy story. But it's about rabbits with swords fighting against the, the cruelty and tyranny of the eagles, the wolves, you know, the, the carnivores. And... These rabbits are longing for the one true king who will right all wrongs, who will mend what they call the broken wood. <laughs> it's creation groaning is what it, the story is after. But what's fascinating is the story and the characters in that story over and over and over again as they suffer betrayal, as they suffer death, as they suffer loss, what they keep saying to each other is that it will not always be so in the mended wood. They're constantly looking to the future. It will not be so 
in Emmanuel's land, in the new heavens and new earth, in the imperishable reality. So you have to compare. Second, you have to see that you're not alone in the testing fire, and this is, this is the beauty of this passage, right? Joy is with you in the fire. Joy is right there alongside the agony, and of course the most famous picture of this we went through already in Daniel. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are exiles in Babylon, who are weird because they won't worship what everyone else is worshiping, and they don't love what everyone else is loving. Uh, their allegiance is to the Lord alone. And that allegiance is causing them pain. I mean, we use that. They were maliciously accused by their coworkers. This is how they were sold out and what it felt like. And that's what we talked about, right? That they were like sheep being nipped at by lions. Carnivores tearing pieces of flesh away. That's how the words felt. Because of their allegiance to the Lord. Right? So they chose famously not to bow down to this golden image because of their allegiance to the living God. And Nebuchadnezzar hears it and they tell him, we see you, we hear you. God may or may not deliver us, but we're still not going to bow down to your image. Right? And so he gets furious. He throws them into the fiery furnace. And to everyone's surprise, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not burned up. And they're not alone. There's one like, like the son of the gods walking around inside the furnace with them. Right? And then all three men functional miracle of resurrection, come out unharmed, unsinged, not smelling like the flames because they were not alone in the testing fire. Of course, the promise is what? When you go through the flames, the Lord is with you. They shall not consume you. You will not be burned up. Your faith will be shown to be genuine. You're not alone in this. And of course, I think it's a picture of Jesus ahead of time in Daniel 3, but as Christians on the other side of the cross, we have an even better picture of what it's like to have Jesus with us in the flames. Because remember Jesus in the garden. He's in agony. He's about to go to the cross to die for sinners, people who put too much joy and love and hope in this world and have in turn hurt other people in the process and offended God. Right? And so Jesus is in agony, crying out, Father, if possible, take this cup from me. And he's, he's looking into this cup of judgment and wrath and suffering and sorrow. I mean, it's the cup described in Jeremiah as here is God pouring out his judgment on his people for their unfaithfulness. And I want you, Jesus, to drink every last bitter drop every single human being that, that Jesus came to die for. Right. And so Jonathan Edwards writes that the sorrow that Jesus is experiencing there, it's arising because he, he's seeing a cup of wrath which is vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. You can picture Jesus' face warm as he's staring at this, this metaphorical cup, right? He's, he's getting a view of the furnace of wrath into which he's about to be cast. It's like Jesus has been brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it, see it, see its raging flames, feel its glowing heat, and that he might know what the cross is going to be like, where he's going, and what he's about to suffer for us as Christians. Right? Jesus signed up 
for the, the fire. Willingly, in love, in agony. Except, he suffered infinitely more than we do because he went through it alone. That's the point of the cross. So that you would know without a shadow of a doubt that the various trials you're going through, it's not because the Lord doesn't love you, it's because the Lord loves you. It's not because God is mad at you that you're going through various trials, that he's punishing you somehow. It's, it's a testing fire. It's a purifying fire. And the cross shows you that. Because look at how Jesus took your place. He can't be because he's punishing you. You're an elect exile, saved by Jesus' suffering. Right. And what, what helps me process this is seeing the depths of Jesus' agony on the cross. Right? We suffer here. Because we lose what we love most. And this is, it's just hard to think about that, right? We lose our earthly joys. And the ones that are most painful are the most relational. Right? What did Jesus lose on the cross? His father. His suffering is infinitely worse because he lost what too, what he loves most. His father's face, which he had beheld as the eternal son of God for eternity. The longer the relationship, the more painful the loss. And so then when you see Jesus dying on the cross for you, the Father turning his face away, dying for our sins, for those all who like the rich young ruler who love this world too much, um, what makes it unique is even in the flames, Jesus is still loving his Father perfectly. This is his act of obedience. This is what makes it so unique, that though he is in agony, what does he cry out on the cross? Who is he longing for? What does he want? Does Jesus say, oh, Father, you're causing me to suffer. I don't want any." Father, into your hands I can hear it. With my last breath. Cries out, my God, my God, even in the flames of trouble, crying out for his deepest love, because my God what you cry out for the right, it's it's my God. Just like you, you also that we would know the joy of having our living hope with us in the flames, not alone. You see, Jesus isn't asking you to do or go through anything that he hasn't already experienced worse. And so what Peter is describing, and I think what, what the resurrection of Jesus does for us as Christians, that when you go through the testing fires, we let, we let our troubles drive us deeper into the joy that Jesus purchased for us through his suffering. And you find out that the joy of Jesus and his resurrection and his living hope is right there with you in the fire, in the flames, so the flames don't harm you, they don't consume you, they don't overwhelm you. He who called you by name says, you are mine, don't be afraid. Right. So will you trust him? <laughs> and this is where Peter goes on to say, you haven't seen him, you love him. Because how can you not love someone who loves you to that extent? How can you not love a God who chose in love to come and suffer in every way we have and worse, for the joy set before him so that he might have us.
And you can hear Peter's echoing of Jesus' words, blessed are those who have not seen but still believe. It's John 20 after the resurrection. How much, how much more joy will you have when our faith becomes sight? Let's conclude, right? We're in the testing fires. You're called to process your suffering in light of the gospel. That's what Peter's trying to show them. And he's trying to show them just how precious your faith is when you hold on in the midst of trouble. That's what he's communicating, right? That your various trials are part of God's plan to refine us, to show the world how powerful this living hope is. I mean, that's 1 Peter chapter 3, that you're going to live the kind of life that other people are going to look at you and say, why do you respond that way? Why are you not falling apart right now? Why do you grieve but not crushed? Why are you perplexed but not in despair? Right? So what Peter wants us to leave here feeling and seeing and knowing is that your faith is more permanent, more praiseworthy, and more precious than gold. And it, the most valuable substance on earth, at least according in Peter's worldview. Right? permanent. Even gold burns up in the fire eventually. But faith in the gospel has made you imperishable because you have been born again, says Peter, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the gospel, the living and abiding word of God. Right? You're now impermanent. You are now permanent, imperishable. Your faith is more precious than gold. Right? So just let that sink in. To God, in his economy, what matters most? You holding on to him. Right? Or, right, for Jesus, the joy set before him, it led him to despise the shame of the cross, that Jesus' joy in the midst of the agony of the cross was to have us. It's showing us how precious we are. We are more wanted by God than everything else in all of creation because he came to die for humans for sinful humans at that, for you, for me. And your faith is praiseworthy. Right? When you hold on in the flames, are you willing to go through the fire for God's sake? What's it say? You're gonna, it's going to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's verse 7. <laughs> this is one of my favorite places to go to because it's turning our shame into praise. Right? I mean, on the one hand, it's a yes. When you get to the end and you realize that Jesus, through his resurrection, was guarding you the whole time he had carried you from point A to point B all the way into the promised land, you're going to say, you're just going to explode in praise for him when you see him. Right? What it seems like Peter is getting at to encourage these loved Christians who are suffering is look at what will also happen? Your faith will be praised that you held on. Right? It's amazing. You think about it. So think about our kids. We're, we're just at that stage. And Asher at some point here, is, he's not there yet. He's going to learn to walk. Right? He's, he's full of our DNA. But at some point, when he, when he takes a step and falls on his face, what do we do? We still cheer for him. Even though he 
publicly failed. <laughs> He's going to fall on his face. He's going to have bumps and bruises. But because we're parents, we cheer for him. And you do that every step of the way, and that doesn't go away even into adulthood. The parents cheer for their children even when they don't get it right. right See, so what Peter is getting at is that your faith is more precious than gold that perishes. It's going to result in praise, honor, and glory when you see Jesus that somehow we're also going to be praised for holding on. We're going to receive the applause Jesus alone deserves. It's unbelievable. That when you, when you see Jesus and you fall apart in awe that he carried you this far, you're also going to hear the applause and the celebration of heaven for us, those who held on by faith. And then you're going to say, I didn't do anything to deserve this. And you're going to cast down your crowns at Jesus' feet, and it's going to be this eternal, joyful celebration and, and mutual delight in one another. Welcome to the world of an inexpressible joy. My favorite illustration, it's an imperfect example of what it's like because we're talking about Hollywood celebrities, and this is how we'll end. Um, and a guy named Mel Gibson publicly failed, like horribly failed, right? Anti-Semitic drunken rants to the point where he got blacklisted by Hollywood. Nobody would hire him. They didn't want him to make movies. They didn't want him to be seen, and he had to get sober. And what you didn't know beforehand is when Mel Gibson was doing well, Robert Downey Jr., the guy who plays Iron Man, was uh, up to the similar shenanigans. He was an alcoholic. He was hurting everyone he loved, and he needed to get a place to get sober and get dry. And Mel Gibson gave him refuge in his house to say, you know, you need to hug the cactus. You've done wrong. You've hurt people. You need to own it but I'm going to give you a space to get back on your feet. So fast forward to now, right? Several years later when Robert Downey Jr. is a success and they're at an award show and uh, he got to choose who was going to present this award. And Robert Downey Jr. says, you know, gives all this background and he said, when Mel Gibson took me in and loved me, he said, I want you at some point to do this for someone else. Little did he know that it would be for him. <laughs> and what's astounding is Robert Downey Jr. just starts talking and says, okay, let him without sin be the first to cast the stone. And if that is you ready to throw a stone at him, you're in the wrong business because you're in Hollywood. <laughs> but let's welcome Mel Gibson. And so everybody stands up and cheers and claps and rejoices and honors Mel Gibson, the moral failure, as he received the accolades that someone else achieved on his behalf. <laughs> First time when you hear the audio, I just wept because it was a picture of what Jesus is going to do for us. Because you're going to say, I don't deserve this. The only reason I got here is because you were my good shepherd who put me up on your shoulders and carried me home. But it turns out when Jesus finds me, even the angels in heaven start rejoicing. Because your faith is more precious than gold. So if you're going through the fire, the tested genuineness of your faith is being tested. But no, Jesus, your joy is with you in the fire. As you hold on, it will result in praise, honor, glory for Jesus and somehow for us through faith in him. Trust him. Let's pray.
Father, this is good news. And I pray for those who are in the testing fires of success or sorrow, um, who are feeling the agony, uh, that they would know what you told us already in Isaiah, that when we walk through the fire, through the flames, we shall not be burned, we shall not be consumed, we are loved, we are known by name. And so, may we be a community that that learns how to do this well, Lord, uh, that by faith, our joy and our grief go side by side, even as we remind ourselves that these things will not be so when we see Jesus face to face, and you make all things new. So we pray, come Lord Jesus, and give us the faith to hold on between now and then, in Jesus' name, amen.